Hey there, listeners. Just a quick note before we get started. There is a description in this podcast of an act of sexual violence, and so let this message serve as a trigger warning. Okay, let's get started. Welcome to the Edge of Sports podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. Our guest this week is three-time gold medal winning swimmer, member of the International Women's Sports Hall of Fame, and a crusading Title IX attorney, and the founder of the organization Champion Women, Nancy Hogshead Makar. We are going to speak about what the Trump administration could mean to Title IX. Also, I was on the streets of D.C. for the inauguration, and I will have some words about how tiny it was. And lastly, a Just Stand Up award again for Spurs coach Greg Popovich. So Nancy, first and foremost, I love your impression of the Women's March. I know you were out there with your daughters. That's fantastic. Uh, What was the day like for you? Oh, well, first of all, it was nothing like what I thought it was going to be like. So I've been to lots of marches, and you get to hear really inspiring speeches and whatnot. And we never got close enough to hear any speeches. I didn't even know there was a Jumbotron. But (laughs) what was worth the price of admission was just all these women. I honestly looked around at one point and thought, you know, I could be friends with just about everybody here. Right. I didn't hear a single harsh word. Everybody was joyful and excited to see each other. And there was sort of this recognition that we are together. We are one. It was, and then of course the signs were this incredible source of humor and having my girls there and be able for them to know that they were part of the largest demonstration ever on the planet with 600 different marches in 57 different countries on every single continent. And huge marches in places like Idaho and Lincoln, Nebraska. Amazing. The biggest march they think in the history of Atlanta. Wow. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Everything from these small, very red areas all the way to these, you know, huge metropolitan places that you would expect, right? But I, I, I know people that actually flew to Paris to participate in the march. Wow. Yeah. I, I knew this would be special when I was in Seattle a couple of weeks ago, and I asked people, oh, are you going to march? And they said, oh, yeah, I'm driving to D.C. to march. <gasps> wow. Even though there was a march in Seattle of about 70,000 people as well. Wow. Yeah. Wow. It really does say something. Now- A march alone, first of all, what I'm about to ask you, I've been asking everybody. (laughs) A march alone obviously isn't going to beat back this rotten agenda, but what can it do? What is the value of what happened on Saturday other than, you know, the building of community and the not insignificant psychological value of just feeling not so alone? What is the value of it politically and operationally? Well, A couple things. One is I think that it gives the Democrats sort of their chutzpah back. This idea after Trump won, we were all back on our heels. And I campaigned really hard for Hillary. And it was sort of like, this cannot be. And so to recognize that when somebody does speak out, when they are a voice of dissent, that for them to recognize that they're right, this cannot be. And the world agrees and is on our side. You know, I think with George W. Bush, although people didn't agree with his opinions, there was this feeling that well, like, well, they won the election, so we kind of have to let them run with the ball. And I don't think that's going to happen with the Trump presidency. Mm. You know, it, it's interesting that you say that because one of the things that I drew out of Saturday is 
we may be headed for an era where our side needs to see that centrism is not the politics of this moment, that we actually need to pick a side and fight for what we believe in. And this idea of standing in the middle and trying to build consensus. Right, right. It's tra- think, it's almost yeah. like a, a recognizing this as, as a reality and it's a tragic reality, but there is no consensus to be built. And then right. it's just a sign of weakness that you're right. moving well, to their side. Well, I don't know. I, I do think that there's a role for gaining consensus. For example, I'm really hoping to, if Betsy Davos does get confirmed, I want to have conversations with her. I don't know if she understands what sexual violence, number one, what the impact is on somebody's educational trajectory, but also how prevalent it is and what schools really can do about it. But I think that in the past, we've always been reluctant to have political conversations, right? You say, oh, around the dinner table, there's no politics and no religion. And instead, I think that one could only have voted for Trump if they didn't know, for example, there's a difference between Obamacare and the Affordable Care Act, if, right? If you didn't know there was that those two things were the exact same thing, that's because you haven't been talking politics to your friends. You haven't been sort of listening to the conversation. And, th- and I think that that's important, that we actually do talk right. politics, that we don't dance around these very important topics that impact our daily lives. That's a good point because something I strongly believe just based on members of my family, people I know, people I've spoken to, is just about every bigot in this country voted for Trump, but that doesn't mean that everyone who voted for Trump is a bigot. Sure. Do you see what I'm saying? I think both those things are true. Yeah. No, I think some people, it was just party loyalty. They just, you know. Like this is what you do. But there's no question though that it's also emboldened, I think, a really frightening sector of the society. And that part of it, I don't know if there is conversation with. I think there, that's has, a, to that's be a good con- point. there has to be confrontation. Yeah. No, no, no. With that section. But but here's the thing. Most people are appalled and horrified. So to really take the torch and mm-hmm. route out the mice and watch them scurry and run, their ideas about we in this country being separate from each other and that women belong in the kitchen, those ideas, I mean, people are not going to go back. I mean, we've come too far. I mean, I I love what um, Obama's parting statements were of there's no going backwards. It's not like you're going to be able to go like this is 2017 and there is no magic dial on the clock. Like while we were here, we stayed with two moms and their kid and we stayed with our African-American friends. And this idea is sort of like appalling that anybody would think that African-Americans are not going to be a central part of the people that we love and that we work with and that we're neighbors with and that we embrace with everything we have. So you're talking facts. I just worry they're talking <laughs> alternative facts. I, I agree. <laughs> I, yeah, yeah. They have their alternative facts yeah, that yeah. say, well, women do belong in the kitchen and we can turn back the clock. And the crazy thing is, is they talk those alternative facts, even if they're not true. Yeah. If you just yeah. say a lie loudly. Well, a lot of those are like alternative ideas. I know. Right? Yes. And, and I think that the, <laughs> the more, like Oprah Winfrey was smart. She said, I'm not going to give these white racists a platform for them to be able to espouse that, right? Mm-hmm. So she just like quit thinking that like she could have both parties. But the more that these alt right folks speak, the more 
abhorrent that it becomes what their views are because yeah. all of us are a little something, right? So whether you're you got, you know, an immigrant background or there's somebody who's gay or lesbian in your family, or whether or not you've got somebody who's transgender in your family, or whether or not you've got different religions in your family, right? It, it, it's crazy to think that um that these views could gain any traction. Oi. Um your mouth, I think God's little, ears. I know. I think, but I think you're I, also feeling great about Saturday. Well, so yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. But I, I just, a, I tend to be sort of on the crazy optimistic side. I thought Hillary had it going away. Well, so did uh, I think a lot of folks. Um, yeah. I wanted to ask you about this amazing expertise that you've developed for yourself. And I want to ask you what you think the threats are to the 1972 law, Title IX, that are represented by this administration. Sure, sure. What, the th- what, what, act, what can they do to turn back Title IX? But before we talk about that, I think we got to do just a little bit of teaching because I think most people, they hear Title IX, they think, oh, that's the sports law or that's what allows uh, young women and girls to have equal access to sports. Right. Uh, but it's obviously so much more than that. Can you explain what Title IX actually is? Sure, sure. Actually, well, let me let me give what the precursor to Title IX was, which was Title VI. Title VI was enacted because in 1964, before Title IX, as part of the big civil rights package, because in 1954 is when you had desegregation, Brown versus Board of Education, and what these public schools were doing was they were saying, well, this building is only for whites, and we have a donor who gave this over here, and they say that it, they gave it only for white people. So they realized that they had to do something more to protect African Americans. Title VI is about race, color, national origin, and if you took out those words, race, color, national origin, discrimination, and you put in the word sex in 1972, it's the same statute, mm. right? The Department of Education oversees these four different statutes that are based on the spending clause of the Constitution, right? And the idea is if you give money, then the institution has to agree not to discriminate based on race, color, national origin, sex, disability, and age. So those are the statutes that are underneath the Department of Education that are sort of in threat here. So Title VI, I don't know. I don't I don't hear a lot of people saying they want to repeal Title VI. When you talk about Title IX, again, it's discrimination based on sex, and that can take many forms. One is this idea of admissions or access to technology or career counseling or those kinds of things, in addition to sports. But it's also sexual violence, sexual harassment, as well as pregnancy discrimination. Can you explain that connective tissue? Because I hear, I think people talk about that all the time about Title IX and sexual violence. What does Title IX have to do with sexual violence? How do these things work together? Okay, great question. So the Supreme Court already said in employment that Sexual harassment and sexual violence is a type of sex discrimination, right? So if sexual violence is a type of sex discrimination and you, institution, are responsible for making sure that girls and women and and boys and men have the equal rights to an education, then you have to do something about when there's sexual violence on your campus. You can't just, you know, pat somebody on the knee and say, I'm just so sorry that happened to you. That's terrible. Now, get out there and go to class or... (laughs) 
You, you know. can't blithely ignore it or you are in violation of Title IX. It is seen as discrimination. Right, And right. you said something very important because th- this speaks back to everybody who thinks there's some kind of rising gynocracy or something like that. It's that <laughs> – uh, it's, it's that, that, and that's why they voted for Trump. You might have seen that New York Times article. Yeah, people yeah, talking yeah, about yeah. That. But, but so, so Title IX, it's not about ensuring – equal access for women. It's ensuring equal access, period. Period. Yeah. Yeah. That men are not discriminated against, that women are not discriminated against. Title IX has actually been used in a sports context to help men and men's sports opportunities. You have these schools that were historically women's colleges. They become co-ed, and suddenly you've now got to start all these sports programs for men. So it works sort of both ways. As well as equal access to tech and all the other things you're speaking about. That's so important. I don't think people realize that. At all. All right. So now let's get let's get to the nub, as John Carlos says. Uh, yeah. What are the threats to Title IX that this administration represents? How much damage can they actually do to this law? Well, so much of the courts rely on what the Department of Education says. So the Department of Education will come up with a uh, a dear colleague letter, or they'll have some administrative act that sort of puts meat on the bone. So when it came to sports, when it says, okay, you have to provide equal sports opportunities, schools were like, well, do we have to start a football team for the women? I mean, what exactly do we have to do? And do we have, do they have to have a huge arena? And do we have to... So the, the Department of Education wrote these guidelines that said you have to do three things. You have to give them equal opportunity to participate. Two is you have to treat them the same way, give them the same quality experience, And third is you have to give them equal scholarship dollars, right? So a violation of any one of those is a violation, right? But that didn't answer the question of, do we have to give a football team? So then in 1979, the um, Department of Education answered that question as to how many sports opportunities did a school have to add? And um, how is it that you actually measure opportunity? And making it very clear that Girls may have different interests and abilities in sports than men do. So men may want to play football and women may want to play soccer and lacrosse and fencing and other kinds of things. So courts rely on what the Department of Education says when somebody goes to court and says, hey, you're discriminating against me. They rely on the department on what they say to determine whether or not a school is or is not in compliance with Title IX. And can you map that out for us? Mm-hmm what it could look like. Let's pretend it's 2020. Okay. Can you map out for us what it would look like if the Trump administration, Betsy DeVos, if they get their wish list in mm-hmm. terms of how Title IX is applied or not applied? Okay. Probably first thing they would do is to yank anything that has to do with transgendered kids so there would be no protection for them whatsoever. The rate of suicide for transgender kids is, you know, it's like 50%. Yeah. It's really astounding. The Suicide what, attempts, it's even higher. Yes, yes. And then probably just any protection for uh, sexual orientation at schools. So that schools would not have to, put, you know, if somebody's being bullied or picked on or whatnot, they wouldn't have to do anything about that. Third is, I think, anything to do with sexual violence, they would say, you know what, you better let the police handle it. Don't require schools to do virtually anything. You can have a, a sexual predator on your campus who's going from woman to woman to woman, and you, school, don't have to do anything. We're going to let the police handle that. Certainly, you know, sports, all of the guarantees that we've had since you know, we're talking, you know, mid-70s, all of that could be potentially at risk. And how can people resist this? What 
would you argue other than I'm sure a lot of folks are, are going to be saying, you know, go out and vote, but obviously mm-hmm. the, the, it's more pressing and, you know, waiting till 2018 uh, may not be an option. Mm-hmm. So what do you recommend that people do to resist the non-enforcement of Title IX or the rollback of Title IX? So there are all different groups that are working on various specific issues. And so get yourself on their mailing list and find out what it is that's happening, right? Because a lot of what- do you recommend? Are there any that you- Yeah, absolutely. So I would recommend, first of all, our organization. So we, I run Champion Women. We provide legal advocacy for girls and women, particularly in sports. So as it comes to sexual violence, we are interested in how it plays out either as being a victim or how men's sports can foster this hypermasculine ethos. So certainly my organization, Champion Women, we're at championwomen.org. But the National Women's Law Center is outstanding. The California Women's Law Project, equal rights advocates out in California, outstanding. I would say sort of more globally as opposed to the specific issues that I deal with. But the ACLU is very good. If you're interested in having athletic programs be warm and hospitable to gay and lesbian athletes, then you'd be interested in Athlete Ally. You'd be interested in... uh, Certainly the You Can Play project. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, You Can Play. It depends on sort of what your issue is. But a lot of these things, they happen what I would call in the weeds, right? You've kind of got to do that deep dive to really know what's going on. Find somebody that you trust and that you're willing to support. Who do you who do you trust as to that they're giving you accurate and lawful information and then really then support that person. I've always wanted to know this about you Nancy. I mean, you won 3 gold medals at the Olympics. I'm sure you had the opportunity to do all kinds of things. Why this? I mean, because oh, you've made you've made such a deep dive into this, not just as a spokesperson, but obviously as an attorney. I mean, writing books, uh, issuing lawsuits. I mean, all, all sorts of things <laughs> that you've done. What, was it something in your own life? I mean, yeah. what was it that that pushed you towards this work? Well, I think a couple things. One is <clears throat> I was always very aware as an athlete that I was being what I would now say today at age 54 of what was happening was I was being gender policed. So I was an elite athlete that uh, was very strong, physically strong, and was told all the time, you know, people had to comment and let me know on a daily basis that what I was doing and sort of who I was was not consistent with being female, right? So starting at a very young age, if I was wearing a tank top and I'd be going into the restroom, somebody would say, hey, that sign says women. (laughs) I would say, I'm a girl. Wow. And so everything from that all the way to, um, you know, like, so I, I have, I'm really muscular. And I think the first time somebody wow, wow. actually- uh, uh, brag paid much, me, Nancy? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> paid me like, you know, a quarter or whatever it was in school was like seventh grade for me to make a muscle and show everybody. I mean, that's crazy, right? Okay. <laughs> and, you know, I got told things like, I wouldn't want to be in a dark alley with you. Mm. And I would look at him like, Weird well, thing I don't want to be in a dark alley with you either, yeah. right? I mean, wh- why on earth would you think that I would be, right? But I was I was that muscular and that sort of, you know, whoa, people really had a big 
shock reaction. So I, I was very aware that certainly being ambitious and being uh, having very high goals and people would make comments about, you know, you're not going to find a husband and who's going to want to be people with you. People treated it as a deficit. Right. Exactly. Right, right, right. Yeah. My, all what I consider my strengths were treated because I was a female and had those traits were considered negative. And then something happened that I thought could not possibly happen to somebody who was smart and ambitious and sexuality would not be like my sort of my strong suit. But I was out running um, and I was raped. And so somebody grabbed me, pulled me into the woods. And so two and a half hours, it was really violent as harsh, you know, and I was stuck in the woods with crazy man for two and a half hours. And I thought that was this, I, was I, this I under, after the Olympics? Was no, this, this was before. before. Yeah. yeah, this was my sophomore year in college. I was 19 years old, so I was 22 by the time the Olympics came around. Oh, but I, I thought that I understood there was this thing called sexism out there in the world, but I just never thought it was going to affect me. Right. <clears throat> I thought I was going to be able to accomplish my way out of it. And what I, <clears throat> what I really got was until it gets better for everyone, it's not going to get better for me. Mm. So that's really where it started. And so right after the Olympics, I interned at the Women's Sports Foundation. Yeah, so between that and the Olympics, did you have a support system? Were you able to have people to speak to? I mean, I can't – it's it's difficult to see and, and makes it all the more kind of remarkable, like how you were able to – become an Olympian after right. experience. No, honestly, like I, I look back, I, think, I mean, bragged much, you said earlier about my muscles. Like, I, I I can't believe it either. I had a really good support system in some ways and not so good in other ways, mm. because mostly because our society just wasn't there. So the way that- Particularly in the early 80s. I mean, I'm trying to think of right. what that support system would have even looked like back then. So in general- People didn't talk about rape culture. Right. They didn't talk about having been raped was a shameful thing. It was something that I was highly encouraged never to tell anyone, to hide it. It was shameful to have that happen. And I remember like, going to the library and trying to read up on rape and, you know, what was in store for me because I had terrible what now we would call PTSD. So I couldn't sleep. It was hard to concentrate. I had these crazy thoughts like I'd be in class and think that somebody would was going to come in with machine guns and say, we want Nancy and like, ah, right? So I was and, – and those kinds of thoughts were sort of flooding. Um, mm -hmm. I used to – I remember one time I walked out to my car and somebody was innocently walking the other way. And by the time I got in my car, like I was shaking so hard that I couldn't use the pedals. Like I had to just sit there for like an hour until I could calm down. But even how to calm myself down was really hard. And when I would try to sleep, I had this freakish thing where I would check the doors and the locks over and over and over and over again. So, you know, after day three of checking the locks, you know the door is locked, but I couldn't help it, right? So I just kept doing it over and over. The way I had really good help was Duke University. So they bent over backwards for me. Every rape victim, whether or not you knew your assailant or you didn't, whether or not it was really violent or you don't remember a bit of it because you had too much to drink, it should get the kind of help that I got, which was, um, number one is, it was right before finals, and they just took two classes off my transcript. They don't even appear, normally it would be a WF, 
withdraw fail. And so they just took them off, number one. Number two is they moved me on to Maine West, which is the part of the school that everybody wants to live. And how they found a single, which normally only seniors have, and I was a sophomore. Third is they got me really good counseling. So they did two things right. Number they one They treated is, you like a survivor. Exactly, yeah. Number one is they believe that it happened, which I think a lot of women don't right. get that. And two is they believed in the depth of my emotional upset. And I think that's number two is where we all need to go is believing the victim in their emotional upset. What is there? One of the reasons why I still talk about it, even though, believe me, I it's not for me that I do is because I just don't see enough 54-year-old women who went on to go have great lives afterwards, who didn't get stuck in that, who suffered terribly, but were able to come out on the other side of it and right. talk then to somebody who's 19 years old or however old to say like, sister, I know how you feel. I mean, I truly authentically am there with you. I know how you feel. And, you know, hold their hand and say, like, I don't know exactly how it's going to happen, but I do know that you're going to feel better. This is not forever. I'm starting to understand how you are so resilient at this moment in 2017, <laughs> politically. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> you're like, yeah, we can come back. Right. <laughs> this right. Is... The ball bounces up. As I right. say about the human spirit is like you can you can bounce the ball down, but it will if you just mm. let it, it will come up. And I really feel the same way about what the march was the part of the ball bouncing back up. Wow, that's such a perfect way to end this interview. I have so much I want to talk to you about, but that's I, I can't think of a better way to end it than that. N Nancy Hogshead Makar, thank you so much for your voice. Thank you for your courage. And I'll, I'll see you in the streets. Okay, Dave. All right. This is great. Thank you very much for having me on. I appreciate it. Thank you so much again to Nancy Hogshead Makar. Keep up with what she's doing on Twitter at Hogshead3AU. That's Hogshead, the number three AU. We will link to all the organizations she mentioned about how to fight back against the rollback of Title IX in the description of this podcast. And now it's time for some choice words about Donald Trump's tiny inauguration. On Friday, I spent roughly nine hours from 6 a.m. to 3 p.m. on the streets of drizzling Washington, D.C., inside and outside the Secret Service checkpoints at Donald Trump's inauguration. Look, I've been to every inauguration since January 1997, assessing supporters and protesters to gauge both size and enthusiasm. It's fun and a perk of living in Washington, D.C., now, I wasn't planning to write about what I saw on Friday. It's a little out of my sporty lane until I saw Donald Trump press secretary Sean Spicer say on Saturday that, quote, this was the largest audience ever to witness an inauguration period, both in person and around the globe. Then, as his voice shook and his face became mottled, he shouted, these attempts to lessen the enthusiasm of the inauguration are shameful and wrong, end quote. The next day, Trump familiar Kellyanne Conway said that Spicer was merely stating, quote unquote, alternative facts. These are not alternative facts. These are lies. 
This is what is called gaslighting, which means when you manipulate someone by psychological means into questioning their own sanity. It's unconscionable behavior for an anonymous internet troll, let alone the press secretary of the president of the United States. It's one thing for a campaign to say things that are demonstrably untrue. That's been the reality for as long as we've had presidential campaigns. But it is chilling when people who hold the levers of power will look straight at a bank of cameras and lie. So here's the straight truth from someone who walked every inch of the inaugural ground on Friday. This was the smallest inauguration I've ever seen. I was tweeting that and saying it on camera during the day on Friday before I heard those observations justified by both aerial shots and Metro Rider statistics. Here I am on Democracy Now! saying just that. And I don't know whether it's the fact that Trump's approval ratings are in the 30s right now. I don't know if it's because he made all these promises to his supporters and he's bringing in the same crew of Goldman Sachs billionaires. I don't know if it's all the corruption and the scandals that are coming in, but you don't feel that enthusiasm among the Trumpites. I mean, we were chanting on the line coming in and Trump people just had their heads down. It's also worth saying that the Trump people I've seen are not the wealthy Bush types. I mean, these are folks who've made their trek. They definitely come from a different class element who are coming out here and they're not energized. And frankly, that's a really, really positive point to take from today. I said that because I saw the empty stands that were supposed to be filled with throngs of Trump supporters. I said it because I saw how easy it was to ride public transportation and drive into downtown. I said it because of the surprisingly sparse smatterings of red baseball caps, as well as my conversations with local souvenir salespeople who were overloaded with MAGA merchandise that just wasn't moving. It was obvious. The people just weren't there. I can understand why Sean Spicer was clearly ordered to lie. It's not just because of Trump's obsession with insisting that things in his life that are small, his hands, his net worth, whatever, are actually huge. The motivation for these reckless and easily provable lies are found in the second part of Spicer's statement. Quote, these attempts to lessen the enthusiasm of the inauguration are shameful and wrong, end quote. The fear of waning enthusiasm among the Trump faithful is real and well-founded. Not only does he enter office with the lowest approval ratings in the history of recorded numbers for an incoming president, not only does a significant majority dislike the way he has handled the transition of power, but his base supporters are looking at his appointment of billionaires, Goldman Sachs folk, and DC swamp dwellers, and already wondering if they were sold a false bill of goods. I spent a good part of Friday looking for people in those red caps and speaking to them. I cannot say loudly enough how different their mood was from the 2000 and 2004 people with whom I spoke at the Bush-Cheney inaugurations. The Bushies were confident, ready to argue, and even fight. The famously pugnacious Trumpites were unsure, confused by the small turnout, and disoriented about how to respond to being on security checkpoint lines and finding themselves outnumbered by chanting protesters. Walter, a Trump supporter from Virginia, said to me, This isn't what I thought it would be. I thought this was going to be like our version of Woodstock. Instead, I'm just cold. Susan from West Virginia said to me, 
On the plus side, I guess it can't get worse. And I'm still glad we're going to get the Supreme Court. But today, this is sad. End quote. Raymond from West Virginia shrugged his shoulders and said, I thought it would be like one of the rallies. Instead, it's this. Raymond then asked if I was Jewish. I said, yes. And he said, just checking. I said, come on, Raymond. Even your anti-Semitism sounds demoralized. He looked down sheepishly, and I almost felt sorry for him. In addition, the Secret Service and TSA in charge of the checkpoints, both groups maligned by this administration, were cracking jokes about the president-elect as we were going through the metal detectors. One TSA agent even took a button from me that said, Solidarity Trumps Hate. He wasn't confiscating the button. He took it to wear later, as he told me. If it wasn't for the thousands of protesters who came out for both permitted and non-permitted demonstrations, I wonder if the day would have had any life at all. I know many are making jokes about Sean Spicer, Kellyanne Conway, and their embrace of alternative facts. On one level, you laugh to keep from losing your mind. It's like the scene in Woody Allen's Bananas when the crazed dictator says, From this day on, the official language of San Marcos will be Swedish. Silence! In addition to that, all citizens will be required to change their underwear every half hour. Underwear will be worn on the outside so we can check. Furthermore, all children under 16 years old are now 16 years old. But jokes alone are not going to cut it right now. It would have been so easy for Sean Spicer to say, hey, it was a rainy Friday, the crowds were small, time to get to work making America great again. The fact that they can't admit something so small raises the terrifying prospect of what they will say when the question is not about crowd sizes, but about whether or not to go to war. The great historian Howard Zinn once said, all governments lie, and that's true. But I don't think there's ever been a group of people willing to set the bar so low. Unlike the Bush people, they're not even bothering to construct false evidence for their lies. They're just betting a majority of the country won't care. We have to be better than that. We have to be better than them. The future depends on it. And now it's time for the Just Stand Up Award. This week it goes to Spurs coach Greg Popovich. Before the Spurs-Cleveland Cavaliers game on Saturday night, Pop used half of his 14-minute press conference to unleash a powerful rant against Trump. It's so long I can't even read the whole thing, but I want to read my favorite part. It was so good. He said, I want to be totally vanilla. Whether someone says something great or something bad about me, you can't let that affect you. But we have somebody in office right now who should take that lesson. So he took the transition right to Trump. And then he talked about the Women's March protest, saying, The march today was great. And somebody said on TV, what's their message? Well, their message is obvious, that our president comes in with the lowest approval rating of anyone who ever came into office. And there's a majority of people out there, since Hillary Clinton won the popular vote, that don't buy his act. 
and I just wish he had the ability to be more mature. He could talk to the groups that he disrespected and maligned during the primary and really make somebody believe it. But so far, we got to a point where you can't really believe anything that comes out of his mouth. You really can't. End quote. Pop said a whole lot more than that, and I really want people to see the whole thing. And we'll link to his entire seven-minute amazing speech off the cuff in the description of this podcast. But I want to read the last part because it's so right on. He said, I just wish he'd gone up there and said something to bring people together or said, I know some of you are scared. But he can't do that because bullies don't do that. End quote. Greg Popovich and Donald Trump are roughly the same age. One is a person who holds universal respect and love him or hate him, he always tells you the truth. The other is a figure of abject derision and bullying, the sort of person who, like I said last week, has hatreds that drip off of him like cheap bronzer. In a sane world, Donald Trump would be the basketball coach and Greg Popovich would be the 45th president of the United States. But we live in an upside down world. So I'll stand with Popovich in the streets to fight the Trump agenda. Also, shout out to Steve Kerr, who took a delicious shot at the alternative fact machine, Sean Spicer. So folks should know one last little comment. Uh, Next week, we're going to do a lot about the incoming Super Bowl. A lot of folks are already using the hashtag not my team, as in not my president, to talk about the New England Patriots since Tom Brady and Bill Belichick are such Trumpites. And if the Atlanta Falcons win the Super Bowl, that also means the parade will be held in John Lewis's district in Atlanta. So a hell of a political contrast between the Patriots and the Falcons. But I would like people to keep one thing in mind. The New England Patriots are not just Tom Brady, Bob Kraft, and Bill Belichick. There are players on this team who are part of this growing athletic resistance, including the brother of the person we interviewed a couple podcasts ago, Michael Bennett. That would be Martellus Bennett, who, along with Devin McCourty, has raised his fist during the singing of the national anthem. So as much as I dislike the New England Patriots, as much as I want the Atlanta Falcons to win, as much as I absolutely cannot stand the Belichick-Brady nexus, remember that amidst the Patriots, there are dissidents. Well, that's all for this week's show. Thank you so much to Nancy Hogshead Makar for being on the show and being so brilliant and so brave. Thank you so much to my producer, Dan Bloom, for putting it all together. Thank you so much to Greg Popovich for your words. Please call the Edge of Sports hotline, 401-426-3343. That's 401-426-EDGE. We got a hell of a question this week. Give us your sports world alternative fact. I'm sure there are a lot of folks in Wisconsin saying, go Packers, win the Super Bowl. That would be an alternative fact. Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens, the cleanest players in baseball history, period. Give us your alternative fact, 401-426-3343. Call it in, 401-426-EDGE. For everybody out there, stay frosty and stay in the streets. We are out of here. Peace. Peace.